listening to the podcast of East River Park Christian Church. If you'd like to find out more information about the church or donate to this ministry, please visit us at eastriverpark.church. We pray that this is an encouragement to you as you grow in Christ through the local church. There's a um, psychological term called emotional deprivation uh, that, that probably haunts many of us in ways that we've never realized. I'll define this term. It's emotional deprivation is defined as not being able to show or receive love within your relationships, whether with your friends or your family or spouse. It's a feeling of disconnect, distance, and disengagement, as well as the inability to feel at ease with any affection from others. Eva Chen, she wrote uh, an article describing how this impacts uh, our life. I'll just read what she wrote. She said, in adulthood, emotional deprivation manifests in ways which are full of paradoxes. So we're constantly searching for someone to love us, but feel no, uh, no one ever will. We want to deeply connect with others, but to stop them from knowing who we really are. We want to feel included, but shun ourselves and retreat when given the opportunity to join others. In a way, emotional deprivation keeps us stuck in a negative feedback loop. So we have a constant desire to escape our feelings of loneliness and disconnect. But when the chance arises to dip our toes in the water, when, when someone tries to give us what we desire, we falter, withdraw, and instantly hide back in our shell. Emotional deprivation is, a natural, is not a natural instinct for the majority of us. But for those who grew up experiencing nothing else, it is uh, familiar and comfortable and safe. It's difficult to leave the confines of safety into something unknown, even if love and care is ultimately waiting for us on the other side. How true is that? I have personally seen firsthand people struggle with this uh, reality. It's as if drama and trauma and suffering have become so common in their life and in their past that the thought, the, just the thought of peace and comfort and safety and love does not stir inside of them something good but something uncomfortable. In reality, it's the reason why people tend to blow up their lives, like just as soon as their lives start to come down. So safety for them is chaos. Comfort for them is anxiety. But friends, it, it, it doesn't have to be that way. Chaos doesn't have to be your normal. Drama doesn't have to be your comfort. Psalm 36 is going to show us that there is a kind of love from the Lord that can over, overwhelm our lives in all of the best ways. There's a kind of steadfast love of the Lord that will not abandon you, that will not walk out on you, that will not give up on you. The reason you and I often desire or struggle to desire love from the Lord is that we see love from the Lord through the lens of humanity. Meaning people have let us down. People we love and people that say they love, love us, like they've let us down. So here's my plea this morning. My plea is not to see the steadfast love of the Lord through the lens of people, but through the lens of the Word. 
the unfailing, always consistent Word of God. So the question I'm going to answer from Psalm 36 is this in your notes is, why should we want the steadfast love of the Lord? Like, why should we want that? That we might see and savor and desire the steadfast love of the Lord through the lens of the book. So we'll be in Psalm 36. If you have a digital Bible, I'll be in the ESV. Um, you have a bulletin, it's all there. Before we read the text and, and walk through it together, let's pray like we do every week. God, we humbly come before you and uh, God, confess our struggle with this. There are so, maybe there's people here this morning, but we, we certainly know people. It just, it just seems like they're in this perpetual loop of drama. And we're, we're just so confused why they would do that. Maybe we're confused why we would do that. Where chaos is, is their comfort and love and safety just makes them anxious. That is not the steadfast love of the Lord. That there is something better than, than maybe what we've experienced by people we love and people that say they love us, God, that there is something that overwhelms us in all of the best ways. God, give us understanding in uh, Psalm 36. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Let me read through the text and then we'll talk. Psalm 36 begins, To the choir master of David, a servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters, flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit, and he has ceased to act wisely and do good. And he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He, he does not reject evil. And your steadfast love, O Lord, well, it extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see, O continue your steadfast love to those who, you know, who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. And let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen, and they, and they thrust down, unable to rise. This will be the last uh, psalm that I teach in this series, Sacred Exhortations. We've spent the last, I guess, 11 weeks studying the psalms, or specifically chapters 1 through 41. And like the others, this is a psalm of David. David, a servant of the Lord. The same title and introduction that we see in Psalm 18. And like so many other psalms, David describes the enemy in verses 1 through 4, where we see the description and the plight of the wicked. Which means, like, before we get to steadfast love, we need to hear 
about those that will not be receiving steadfast love. We need to hear a description about the depths of darkness and wicked things in the heart of men. And really, we need to hear those for two reasons. First, like it's helpful to identify the wickedness that is around us. But secondly, and maybe most importantly, it's helpful to understand the wickedness that is often in us. Verse 1. There is a kind of wickedness that, that speaks transgressions deep into the heart of men. There is a voice of disloyalty or rebellion that's whispering into the hearts of men and women. Like It's no surprise that we live in a rebellious culture. And, and not rebellion against what is evil for the sake of good, but what we will see in the text is rebellion against what is good for the sake of evil, but viewed as good in their own eyes. I mean, that, that's what we're seeing in our own culture. So when you look around and you think like, wow, it, it feels like we're in a very rebellious culture. Like so much rebellion happening in our schools or community and country. Psalm 36.1 has the reasoning behind that. It's transgression whispering into the hearts of men and women. Which by default leads us to the second half of verse 1. For rebellious people... Do not fear God. In fact, when you don't fear God long enough, you'll eventually convince yourself there is no God. America, America is not filled with people that don't fear God. America is filled with people uh, that haven't feared God for so long that they don't even believe God exists. Verse 2 says they flatter themselves in their own eyes, meaning if you don't fear God before your own eyes, you'll eventually, you'll just make everything about you in your own eyes. It's the belittling of God and the glorification of sinful self that the wicked act like they're the ones that got it all together. They, they want no one to see their sin and hate their sin. And when the wicked are done lying to themselves, verse 3 says, well, they begin to lie to others. With words of trouble and deception, Charles, Charles Spurgeon he described trouble and deceit like this. He says, this pair of hell dogs generally hunt together. And what one does not catch, the other will. If iniquity cannot win by oppression, deceit will gain by trickery. So when the wicked are done lying to themselves and lying to others, they will literally lie in their bed and plot more ways to do evil things. Verse 4 describes the person that plots evil as they go and as they rest. No, they don't reject evil. They're, they're coming up with new ways to live that out. Like mentioned before, uh, verses 1 through 4 is a warning. Warning uh, to this growing wickedness that we see invading our culture. But let me also say, a warning to the church. Because the reason so many churches are failing is that they are filled with leaders and congregants that flatter themselves with self-righteousness. And they don't even fear God. 
The church is filled with people that have rebellion whispering in their hearts. The church is filled with people that tried to hide their own sin so no one can find it and hate it. The church is filled with people that speak trouble and deceit rather than acting wisely and doing good. The church is filled with people that plot new ways to cause trouble. The church is filled with leaders that don't have the guts to reject evil and purge evil from their gathering. Why are so many churches unhealthy? It's not because they're not contextualizing the message. That might be the reason they're not growing, but that's not the reason they're unhealthy. You can be a very large church with lots of people and still be unhealthy. You can be a very small church and still be unhealthy. No, so many churches are unhealthy because they're sadly and often filled with people sold on cultural Christianity that don't know God. Like, they just don't know God. And they don't fear God. And they spend their lives flattering themselves and hiding their own sin. So let me give us a warning, jumping ahead down to verse 12, that the wicked will all be brought to nothing. And that churches that pursue themselves over Christ will be brought low. Thrust down, unable to rise. Friends, like we want the steadfast love of the Lord. Sure, God loves the world. John 3.16. Sure, God loves the person that hates him. But it, it, it's the steadfast love of the Lord that's reserved only for his children. Why should we want the steadfast love of the Lord? Well, first, uh, steadfast love, as we see in the text, it's mentioned three times in verses. You see it in verse 5, you see it in verse 7, and then you see it down in verse 10. Steadfast love is described in different ways in different translations. So if you just like compare uh, different translations together, you have unfailing love, loving devotion, mercy, faithful love, constant love, loving kindness, and of course the ESV, steadfast love. While the Hebrew word, I think it's difficult to translate, it is this idea of love and mercy for God's covenant people. Not some generic affection, but an ongoing, never-ending, mercy-filled, kindness-covered, covenant love for the people of God. And what's the source of that love? We see right there in verse 5, the source of that love, in all caps, is the Lord. The Lord gives His people steadfast love. And that's not all caps in your Bible just because it's important. Lord, in verse 5, it's in all caps in reference to God's actual name. So if you were to study ancient Hebrew, I know we have a lot of people in our church, that's their hobby, love studying ancient Hebrew. Um, there's not. Okay, and everyone's like, oh, there are? Uh, there's not. Um, you'll discover there's no vowels in its alphabet, like, which makes it incredibly difficult to read. Over time, you, you'll see these markings or dots um, to, added to make these vowel sounds. That's, um, that's not in the original language. It was added later to help us pronounce the language. Therefore, the original name of God transliterates as Y-H-W-H. All right, so there's plenty of Christians that have argued um, over time, like, how do you pronounce that if you were to fill in the vowels? Regardless, there's uh, many Jewish people that were so terrified of saying the name of God in vain 
that they substituted YHWH with the word Adonai, which means Lord, or Elohim, which means God. And then over time, like those words uh, form, came to form Yahweh, which we've heard, and even later people would start calling God Jehovah. Why share all that? Um, well, personally, I don't think anyone really knows how to correctly pronounce God's name. Or at the very least, there's disagreements on this topic. But here what, here's what we do know from Exodus 3. We do know that there was a man named Moses who, he actually asked God, what's your name? This is Exodus 3. Verse 13, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, yeah, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That God's name is I am. Yahweh, Jehovah, Adonai, Elohim, Lord, He is the great I am. Why is that important? It's important because Lord is all-sufficient, all-powerful, and above all things. Meaning we want the steadfast love of the great I am because the great I am has the ability to love us in ways no one else can. Like every person on this planet has and will love you in insufficient ways. Like even in their best in intentions. It's only the all-sufficient Lord that will love you in all the sufficient ways. Let me prove that. Why should we want the steadfast love of the Lord? Uh, finally, we'll get here. Point one. Here it is. The Lord preserves the heavens and the earth. The Lord preserves the heavens and the earth. Looking at the words in verses 5 through 6 uh, that describe the steadfast love of the Lord that extends to the heavens. You'll see three words right there in the text. Faithfulness, righteousness, and judgments. So David is describing that there is like no corner that is untouched by God. You want to grab a telescope and search the farthest of galaxies. There you will find the steadfast love of the Lord. Want to hop in a plane among the clouds? There you will find the faithfulness of the Lord. Want to hike to the tallest of mountains? There you will find the righteousness of the Lord. Want to travel to the depths of the ocean? There you will find the judgment of the Lord. There is no time or space that the sufficiency of the Lord does not reach. And as David is telling us at the end of verse 6, he says, Man and beast, you save. That word more accurately translated preserve. That the Lord, I've, I've said this a lot, but the Lord, like, He didn't create us because He was bored. He didn't create us because He needed anything. He created out of love. The Lord created out of love, therefore, He also preserves and sustains out of love. This is Colossians 1. Verse 17, it says, And He, Christ, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
Christ holds all things together and is reconciling all things to himself. So I want the steadfast love of the Lord because that love is holding my life together and then will preserve me forever. Like we should most certainly fear the God who if he lets uh, loose his grip, stars fall and atoms disappear. I want the preserving love of the Lord. Why should we want the steadfast love of the Lord? Two, the Lord offers the refuge we crave. Verse 7, like, it says, How precious, how precious is the steadfast love of God, O God. Children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. There's this woman... Uh, in the Old Testament, that in many ways I would say she was dealt some pretty rough cards in this life. Um, found herself as a widow with her mother-in-law in a foreign land rather than complaining all the time. She loved others well. She served others faithfully. I'd say she's about as loyal as they come. There's also a man named Boaz, uh, quite fine, fond of this young lady, and he, he saw her in distress and he and he turned to her, and Boaz told Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And maybe this morning like you've, dealt, you've been dealt some pretty rough cards in this life. Or maybe, to be honest, you've been dealt some great cards, but you've played several bad hands. Regardless of what the children of God are going through, this, there is this refuge and the shelter of the Lord. There is a joy and a peace and this overwhelming feeling of safety in the presence of God. So when I sit down in the morning like with my Bible just to study the Word in His presence, I really do feel that. I feel this, this sense of peace and, and joy that I, I have not found anywhere else in this life. Your life does not have to be as busy and as chaotic as you've made it. I mean, don't, don't stand in the middle of the battlefield and then wonder why you're anxious. When the Lord is calling you to, to rest in His refuge and in His presence. Every single time um, we get in the car to go anywhere with the kids, my oldest son wants to know exactly where we're going and how far it's going to take us to get there. And I realize that uh, that's normal for kids, but he just, he's a little extra with it. And simply, like, he wants to stay home 99% of the time. Definitely homebody being at the house is, is his comfort and his peace. And in many ways, I hope, like, he never loses that. Um, yeah, I hope he moves out uh, for, <laughs> for sure. But um, I hope that he always knows that our house can be a refuge from the hard things in life. And there's a lot of kids in Carter County that can't say that. For so many, like home is not a refuge it was designed to be. So if you're a Christian parent, we should make it our aim to make like our home, your home, a refuge for your children and, and other children. Reflecting the refuge that the Lord 
offers. We crave that kind of place. We crave a place of peace and rest and love. We crave a place that, that just doesn't make us feel anxious. We crave a place where the enemy is always outside. And that enemy is never let in. That's the kind of place that's offered to us in His steadfast love. Why should we want the steadfast love of the Lord? Well, likewise, point three, the Lord gives the abundance of His house. We bought our house um, East End in August of 2020, and after signing all the papers and moving in, the three kids just took off running around the house, and they kept like referring to everything as our house and our driveway and our playground and our rooms. And um, now I didn't, I didn't hear them say that and think like, why are you saying our? Like because your name is not on the paperwork; it's our name. Okay. I didn't say any of that because what my wife and I own, our children fully get to enjoy. Like they didn't pay for any of it, but they get to enjoy all of it. That's our Heavenly Father in verse 8. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights, so that every material blessing is owned by God, but the steadfast love of the Lord tells us that we're able to enjoy material blessings from the Lord. The Lord loves His children. The Lord gives good gifts to His children, and yet David is not just speaking about some temporary gifts, although I think he is, but also eternal ones, like things to come, that material blessings don't last forever, that they rot and houses will eventually fall down. But here's the promise of Jesus in John 14. Verse 1, it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, well, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Do you want that? That one day the children of God uh, will, will run through their father's house and they get to yell like, this is ours because I'm his. To feast on the abundance in the house, to drink from rivers of delight that fully satisfy and never run dry. Why should we want the steadfast love of the Lord? For the Lord shines the true light for us to see. Not only is there a river of delight, there's also fountains of life in verse 9. So Jesus, he's speaking to a Samaritan woman at the well in the middle of the day. He says, um, or the text says in John 4, verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water living water of eternal life. Like, how could we possibly find that water? Well, I think the text says that, that we need the true light to see it. Like, simply, you need Jesus to see Jesus. John 1, verse 9, the true light which gives light 
to everyone was coming into the world. So it's only through the light of Christ that you might see the light of Christ, a light that illuminates this path to salvation, a light that illuminates how we even walk in righteousness. I'd say simply we want the steadfast love of the Lord because we're just tired of walking in darkness. The Lord has lovingly turned on the light and then whatever sin that He exposed in you, He took care of. The steadfast love of the Lord, uh, it just doesn't leave His children in dark spaces. A true light that we might see eternal light. The other day I was uh, hanging out with my kids in our living room and the sky just let loose like it has been. It wasn't just a quick rain shower, it was just this intense rain that flooded the yard and the streets. And As I heard this rain let loose, I, I saw my neighbor and his brother, they got out of their car across the street and they only really run this car a few times uh, during the month just to keep it running, and, uh, but they happened to get out right when the rain started to come down. And I love both of them dearly, and they're certainly good people, but there's a part of me that watched them through the window and thought, God, that's not me. And man, I was like, they're getting soaked. And I saw, yeah, I didn't realize it in the moment, just standing there like a psycho in the window, watching them in the chaos, watching them run off to the house. And maybe that's just me, but I think all of us at some point have seen someone get caught in a rainstorm when we're in a like safe and dry place. And sometimes it happens so fast that you're like, you couldn't even help them if you wanted. So you're just thankful that you're not in their position. Certainly a piece of that reality in verses 10 through 12. David is resting in the safety and security and love of the Lord, and he's just watching from that place of refuge. Watching the chaos unfold. Watching evildoers as, as they have fallen. Watching the wickedness that is around him. And his prayer is found in verse 11. Let not the foot of the arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. A prayer for those in a place of refuge that want the steadfast love of the Lord to continue. That prayer is twofold that you'll see. A prayer against the prideful and arrogant. Like we just don't want prideful people to come after what we've got going for us. A prayer against the hand of the wicked. That we, yeah, we really don't want evil men and women to come drive us away. David is, he's most certainly praying for the evil that's around him. I think that's a good and right prayer for us to pray even today. However, the greatest danger is not the evil around us, but in us. And I'd say it's often when we think we are most safe that we're really the most vulnerable. So we need to pray, verse 11 as a prayer against our own pride and arrogance, a prayer against our own tendency to act self-righteous, a prayer against pretending like we've got it all together, a prayer against our own flesh, a prayer against the sinful desires in us that just want to satisfy yourself rather than obey God. We rest 
in the Lord and we watch as the enemy falls and we think, yeah, I, I don't want any part of that one. I just don't want any part of that. I want the steadfast love of the Lord. I want the abundance of His house. I want these rivers of delight. And so we pray like David. I, I often give you a, a main point or a summary point. Let me just give you a summary prayer today. Summary prayer that says, Lord, please don't let pride or wickedness drive me away from your steadfast love. And I'll end with David's words um, as he moves into chapter 37 that still apply for us in chapter 36. He says in verse 1, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. They'll soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. If you want to talk about anything in Psalm 36 or something going on in your life or want to respond, give your life to Christ. Join the church. Be baptized. Whatever you want to do. Um, being convicted from the Word, uh, but through the Holy Spirit. Love to chat with you, but let's pray and then we'll sing together.